we don't often do this um, here in our times of worship, but there are many churches who utilize the historic Christian creeds and confessions as a vital part of their weekly worship services. These uh, statements like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, or uh, the London Baptist Confession or the Westminster uh, Confession or the Heidelberg Catechism. There are, there are a number of them historically that the church uh, has used. What these statements do is they helpfully summarize for us and express the core doctrines of the Christian faith. We must be careful that we never elevate them to the level of scripture or even above scripture as many denominations and Christian traditions have done. Uh, We must be careful not to do that. We believe in sola scriptura, that the scriptures are the authority above all else. And even the statements that we use to summarize these core doctrines that are found in the scriptures must uh, be subservient to the scriptures. And insofar as they agree with the word of God, uh, they are very helpful Uh, to us, and they can be edifying to recognize them and uh, to meditate on them. When churches incorporate these creeds and confessions into their uh, corporate worship Sunday by Sunday, they're really following in the footsteps of Christians from the early church. In fact, our primary text for this morning, verses 4 through 7, is believed to have functioned as an early creedal statement of early Christians, or at least perhaps a hymn that would have been sung in the worship of first century believers. And what a tremendous confession it is. Can you imagine uh, gathering with uh, believers in Crete 2,000 years ago, and together, either in song, they believed that this was probably used at the baptismal services that they would have um, as you gather for a baptism or maybe in the service, whether you're reciting it or you're singing it. Can you imagine lifting your voices together? And this is the thing that you say. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. And you move on from there to talk about the roles of the Holy Spirit and the, the Son, Jesus Christ. What a wonderful confession it, it actually is. Before we get into the details of what is actually being said here, let's first acknowledge why Paul is actually using it. Why has he inserted it here in this passage? Remember the structural pattern for chapter two and chapter three is exactly the same. Paul begins with exhortations for the Christians in Crete to follow. He grounds them in the gospel of grace, and then he concludes them with pastoral instruction for Titus and the other elders to follow. In chapter two, the emphasis is on Christian behavior in the church. In chapter three, the emphasis is on Christian behavior in the world, outside of the church and the testimony that we have before others. And so as we look at the structure of chapter three, that's the reason I wanted to read all 11 verses there just a moment ago, because we need to see the bigger picture here, else we'll get lost in the weeds and we, we won't know exactly. It will be fruitful for us to dig into four through seven, but it is important for us to know why Paul has it here. The main appeal is in verses one through two. We talked about that two weeks ago. And everything else flows all the way down to verse 11, flows out of verses one and two, where Paul has Uh, exhorted Titus to remind the people to behave in particular ways in the world. 
in verses four through seven where we study today, Paul lays the foundation of God's grace as the source and motivation for the Christ-likeness that he has commanded in verses one and two. And then when we get to verses eight through 11, he gives more pastoral instruction, particularly how Titus and the elders are to insist on these things and how they are to discipline people in the church who do not insist on these things or perhaps even contradict them. So Paul takes what might have been a early Christian creed or hymn, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he employs it to emphasize that God's grace toward us is the very reason why we should act with such grace toward the unbelievers around us. Right? Do you see that in the big picture? Because I'm going to move on from it, but I want you to see that first before we dig into the details. Paul takes this creed in the middle and he inserts it to say, behave this way because this is the way God has behaved toward you. Okay, That's the motivation, the gospel of grace. Now, everything in verses four through seven revolves around a single phrase and you find it at the beginning of verse five. Look at it with me. He saved us. He saved us. Saved here means to be rescued. And it brings into view the desperate condition each of us is in as a result of our sin. We're all guilty before God. We're guilty of sinning against God. By nature, we are enemies of God, destined to face his eternal wrath. But to be saved is to be rescued from the penalty of sin. It is to be reconciled to God in peace. And when we come to verse five, we see the central focus is on this phrase, God rescued us. And what did he rescue us from? Himself. It was the holy wrath of God destined to condemn us for all of eternity. And it is the loving grace of God that provides a way for sinners to be made right with himself. He saved us. And the text emphasizes that this salvation is God's work of grace apart from any merit or action of men. Twice in these short verses, God himself is declared to be the savior. We see it in verse four, the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared. And then we see it again in verse six, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior. And all of the saving action in this passage is attributed only to God and to his work. You see, salvation is not a reward for those whose good outweighs their bad. Salvation is not a debt that God owes us for religious services that we render to him. Salvation is the gracious act of God whereby he grants forgiveness and eternal life solely on the basis of his mercy. And if you forget everything else I say this morning, I hope you will at least remember this, that if anyone is to be saved, it will only be as a result of the gracious work of God in their life. And that's the emphasis of this gospel of grace. It's not only the emphasis of the gospel of grace in Titus chapter two and Titus chapter three. It is the emphasis of the gospel of grace from Genesis one to the end of the book of the Revelation. It is all of God's grace 
And we find a particular, wonderful, glorious statement of it here in this early creed. The creed declares three wonderful truths about the saving grace of God. It tells us when he saved us. It tells us how he saved us. It tells us why he saved us. That's the structure I want to take with you this morning. First, let's see when he saved us. When he saved us. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Goodness and loving kindness of God toward the Cretan believers in the context here is set in contrast with the spirit of those Christians in Crete toward the unbelievers in the world around them. They perhaps had fallen into pride, into rebellion, into arrogance against the unbelievers. But in contrast to that, Paul highlights the goodness and loving kindness of God that was shown to them when they were unbelievers. And Paul calls them to show this same grace to others. The same grace that they had experienced from God, they were to show to others. And how had God shown this grace to the Cretan Christians? His grace was demonstrated through the person and work of Jesus Christ and appeared. The word appeared is significant here. Just like in chapter two and verse 11, it's the same word that we get epiphany, meaning a sudden manifestation or appearance of something. It is something being made visible. And what Paul is saying or the creed is saying and Paul is saying through the creed here is that the goodness and loving kindness of God are not abstract ideas that we just kind of theoretically attach to God up there somewhere. No, they are tangible realities that we see in the person and the work of Jesus. In other words, if you want to see the goodness and the loving kindness of God, look at Jesus. If you want to see the grace of God, look at Jesus. That is how God has manifested his grace. Another way to say it is to say this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or we might could say it another way. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's the theme of the Bible. It's everywhere. Now, I want you to notice here in verse four that the timestamp of our salvation is given in the past tense. When the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, the person and work of Jesus in the past, he saved us in the past. How are we to understand this? Simply reverse the phrases to see it maybe a little bit more clearly. He saved us when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And I want to take just a moment to show you why I think this is so significant. Don't turn me off yet. This is good. I want you to think about the various dimensions of salvation recorded in the Bible. The first thing I want to point out to you is that our salvation was determined before the world began. So in eternity past, God sets his love on his people. We see that in Ephesians chapter one. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption 
to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What does he mean by that? That our salvation in one sense was determined before we were ever even created. Indeed, before anything else was ever created. But then we see our salvation is confirmed at the moment of conversion. It is determined before the world began. It's confirmed at the moment of conversion. Romans chapter 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If someone were to come to you this afternoon and they said, hey, I heard you were a Christian. I've heard that being a Christian means that you have to be saved. Tell me, when were you saved? Your immediate reaction is gonna to go to the moment of your conversion because that's the moment that your salvation graciously given to you by Jesus Christ was confirmed through your faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. So salvation is determined before the world began. It's confirmed at the moment of our conversion. Thirdly, our salvation will be completed at Christ's return. Will be completed at Christ's return. Hebrews chapter nine. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. He's coming back. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, I thought we were already saved. If we know Christ, he's, God has predestined it before the worlds began. It was confirmed at the moment that I trusted Christ. Why is he saying that I won't be saved until Jesus returns? Because there's this past, present, future dimension to salvation. We are saved. We have been saved. We are being saved. The gospel is transforming us by the work of the Holy Spirit to be more like Christ. We will be saved. That is one day, all of this will be brought to completion. Glorified, no more sin, no more death, no more disease. It will all be over. We will be saved and we will be with him in eternity. And I say all of that to say this. It's determined before, confirmed at conversion, completed at Christ's return, but it is secured at the cross. Our salvation is secured at the cross. We read it last week, John 19, 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, what's the next three words? It is finished. It's finished. It's done. What's done? Everything necessary for our salvation was done. It was complete. We were saved. It was secured at the cross, the salvation of sinners is God's work from beginning to end. It's his plan, born of his mercy. And if you are in Christ today, it's not because you met a certain standard and it's not because you fulfilled your religious duty. Your salvation was won and secured at the cross when Jesus bore the wrath of God in your place, making a once for all time atonement for your sin. We were saved when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. And how did it appear? In the cross of Jesus. And if God secured your salvation at the cross, he will see it through to the end. He will see it through. He will not say, 
your redemption is good for now, but if you cross me again, I'm taking it away. No, it's secured. It's been secured for 2,000 years. Romans chapter 8. Think about this. This is so awesome. Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? When did he save us? When the goodness and love and kindness of God appeared. When did that appear? On the cross. Our salvation was secured. It was God's work from beginning to end. And that's the only place that we can begin at this point in this creed. When he saved us. Secondly, how did he save us? How did he save us? Verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Again, Paul is very quick here to remind us that our salvation does not come as a result of anything that we do. And here's why. We cannot possibly be saved by our own righteousness because according to verse three, put your eye back on it. According to verse 3, before God's gracious intervention in our lives, what were we? We were foolish, led astray, slaves to sin, so on and so forth. A foolish person, a person that is led astray, a person that is a slave to sin, this is a picture of all of those who are without Christ. That kind of person will not just wake up one day and decide, you know what, I think I'm going to be a Christian now. Does it work like that? No. So how does God save us? Without the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us, our very best efforts are worthlessly ineffective. You can go to church every Sunday. You can give in the offering every week. You can do all the things. You can greet all the people. You can fulfill and tick all your boxes on the religious things, and it will be completely ineffective for your salvation. Why? Because he saved us, not because of works done by us. It's not about us. It's not about our righteousness. Our righteousness will never be good enough. Paul knew this better than anybody. Remember in Philippians chapter three, Paul says, if anyone else thinks that he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he goes through his pedigree, circumcised the eighth day, Tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. That means that he kept it to the nth degree. A person, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, thinking he was fulfilling the will of God. As to righteousness under the law, blameless, he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, he says. Rubbish. All of the righteous efforts that you've put in are nothing but trash, Paul says. Because the only way to know Christ is through faith by his grace. 
So if God doesn't save us through self-righteous works, how does he then save us? And the answer is succinctly given here in verses five and six, and it has everything to do with God's grace. But what I love so much about this creed is that it is ultimately Trinitarian, revealing how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit work together for our salvation. Bill Mount said it this way, this passage has one of the most elegant descriptions of the Trinity anywhere in the New Testament. It shows the three members of the Godhead actively involved in the salvation of sinners. God the Father as planner and initiator. God the Son, Jesus Christ, as the agent of redemption. That's verse six. And the Holy Spirit as the instrument of regeneration and renewal. That's verse five. Gordon Fee calls it an inerrant Trinitarianism that sees Father, Son, and Spirit working co-jointly for our salvation. And why does that, why does that matter? because our salvation is all of God. So how then does God save us? Well, the entire plan of redemption is based on the Father's mercy that has been revealed to us in the sacrifice of his son. We've touched on those already. Let me focus now for our time this morning on this work of the Holy Spirit in verse five. There's a two-fold work that is stated here. Two words are given, regeneration and renewal. Regeneration, the kids have learned this in uh, Adventure Club. Kids, what does it mean to be regenerated? Do you remember? Gus, it means to be born again. That's exactly right. Regeneration means to recreate, to bring to life again. It's when sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins are cleansed from sin, awakened to new life in Christ Jesus. And in John chapter three, Jesus called it, as Gus said, being born again. John chapter three, verse five, Jesus answered Nicodemus, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, water there being the cleansing of sin by the Holy Spirit and being born of the spirit being the regenerating work, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He cannot be saved. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And he says, do not marvel that I said to this to you. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with the, those who are born of the spirit. The Holy Spirit's work in regeneration. The wind blows. The wind of the Spirit blows when the word of God is declared and the gospel is declared. And the Holy Spirit does this sin cleansing, regenerating work where he takes dead sinners and he gives them new life. The regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. The second word is renewal. Renewal refers to the quality of life that is given to us by God's Spirit. And it is a life that is distinctly different from the one before. That's Paul's point here. Think about it in Romans 12 too, where the same word is used. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. Don't be like the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Well, you can't renew your own mind. That's the work of God's spirit according to the word. The Holy Spirit transforms us. He renews us. How about Colossians 3? Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge 
after the image of its creator. It's this work of sanctification that the Holy Spirit does. He brings us back to life and he renews the quality of that life to be distinctly different from what we were before. So he not only gives us life, he gives us a different kind. And this regeneration and renewal is part and parcel of the motivation behind our pursuit of Christ-likeness in the world. Is how it relates back to the first two verses. If you have the Holy Spirit that has brought you to life and is renewing you actively, progressively in your life in sanctification, you will progressively change from being so frustrated and arrogant and prideful to the world to where you will now humbly show the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God. God does this. It is his work. But you're, perhaps you're wondering, how does the Holy Spirit actually go about doing this? I mean, is it just like you just happen to be standing in just the right place, like a person getting struck by lightning? And if you just happen to be in the right place, suddenly the Holy Spirit just, bam, you're there and it's done. Well, no, that's not how it works. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter six that there is a sword that the Holy Spirit wields to do his work. The sword is the word of God. The Holy Spirit accompanies the Holy Spirit scripture the wind of the spirit blows in regeneration and renewal when the word of god is preached and shared and studied and what this truth should do is radically affect our efforts at evangelism and our spiritual maturity neither of which can be fruitful apart from the scriptures they cannot be Because the way that the Holy Spirit does this work is through the word of God. That's why we want people, we want to invite unbelievers to a church service. That's why we don't want to just encourage them to be like Christians. We want to encourage them with the word to believe and follow Christ. Because it is the word of God that the Holy Spirit uses to make the people of God. Hebrews chapter four, the word of God is living It's active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Not Not the book itself. It's not that there's a magic button here that if you just open your Bible one day and you start to read through a passage that there's something that comes alive out of the pages itself and does some type of mystical work in you. No, that's not how it works. It's that it is brought to life through the regenerative and renewal work of the Holy Spirit. As the word of God goes out, he always accomplishes his purposes. And as he accomplishes his purposes, he does it through the work of the Spirit. So how then has God saved us? Not through anything we've done, Our salvation rests solely on God's sovereign work of grace accomplished through the death of Jesus and the transformative power of his spirit, okay? I know that was heavy and that's a lot, but perhaps it'll marinate on your mind for a while. When we were saved, how he saved us, finally, why he saved us. Why, why did he even do this? If, if salvation is God's work from beginning to end, if it flows out of his mercy and through the demonstration of the love of Christ on the cross and it's this regenerative work of his spirit, if it is God's doing from beginning to end, why does he care to do it? Why? Verse seven. So that, it's the purpose statement of the creed, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs 
according to the hope of eternal life. Let's condense it down again, okay? He saved us so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Again, grace is set in contrast with works of righteousness, and it reiterates how God saves us. But the ultimate goal of God's gracious initiative is to make us his own people. It's to make us his own, adopted into the family of God. We've been praying for the Blevins for some time now. They're in this uh, waiting cycle for uh, the adoption of a child from uh, Colombia. And whenever the Lord sees fit to bring that child into their, their home, legally bestowing all rights as being their children will be given to that child, adopted into their family. Belongs to them. All the rights, all the inheritance, all the things belongs to this child. And that's the image that God uses of us here. We become heirs. If salvation came from works, then its benefits would be a payment that God owes us. And our relationship with him would be merely contractual and professional. That is, we do something for God, and in return, he does something for us, okay? If it was through works, that's how it would function. But the true gospel is so much more glorious than that. It's amazing, actually, because salvation is of God's grace. Its benefits belong to us positionally, not because of something that we have done, but because of who we are. And who are we? We are the children of God. And our relationship to him is not contractual and professional. Our relationship to him in grace is covenantal and personal. It's glorious. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That's the when and the how. Here's the why. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, which causes us now to cry out to God as father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. And what is the inheritance that you have? It is eternal life that was won for us at the resurrection of Christ. All that belongs to Jesus, our elder brother now we might say, all that belongs to Jesus now belongs to us, not because of what we've done, but because of who we are in him. And why would God do this? Why? Why such marvelous grace? There is only one possible answer. It can only be out of love. That's the only answer that could possibly work. Ephesians 2, we quoted this while ago. Let's quote it again. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead. So his love doesn't come because of something we've done. It's not something that we are. It's just his love because it's his love. So that we might receive adoption. Excuse me, that's the wrong quote. So that he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And it goes on. We sing about this grace and this love. 
could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Why has God saved us? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Now this passage is immediately relevant on at least two levels. First, it expresses the truth of salvation by grace alone. It's God's work from beginning to end. But he calls us to enter this love by trusting the work of Christ by faith. We are justified by faith. No matter what, no matter what your background is, and I don't know everyone that's here today, I don't know what your background is and what your particular position is in regards to spiritual things or in regard to the things of God. But no matter what you are or where you are, you're trusting in something for life and peace. You're trusting in something. You may be trusting that your good outweighs your bad, or that you've done just the right kind and amount of religious works. You've done the baptism and you've done the catechisms and you've done the confirmation and you've done the, the church things. You, you do all the things and you're, and you're trusting that all of those things will be enough. That's a matter of faith for you. Maybe you're completely irreligious. You are struggling with whether or not you even think that God is there, that he exists. Well, that's a trusting action. There is an element where you are trusting life and peace to the fact that there is no God to which you must be held accountable. No matter how you look at it, either way, the issue eventually boils down to faith. And according to the scriptures, what God has told us in his word, true salvation only comes to those whose faith is in the grace of God through Christ. That's where salvation lies. True peace, true love, true grace can only be found in Christ. That's the first way that we apply it. The text is also relevant because it shapes the entire perspective of how we live and worship, doesn't it? When we understand and focus on the grace of God, it will always produce in us humble praise humility, worship, joyful service to God, that is the product of grace. It affects the way we view and treat others because those who have received God's grace are keen to show God's grace. And if you find that your spirit toward others is arrogant or harsh, or if you determine that your worship is cold, distant, mundane, it's not because the structure of the service is, is, is not beneficial. It's not because the word of God has failed. It's not because people are worse today than what they've been at other times in the world. It's not because of any of those things. It's because you've lost sight of the grace of God in your life. And the only solution for you is to look to Jesus. That's the only solution. To look to Jesus and understand the grace and love of God will lead us to love others. It will lead us to worship God in humility. We will want to be at worship 
not only on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, Sunday by Sunday, we will want to worship him at home. We will want our kids to know him. We will want our kids to understand his grace. We will want to evangelize the people that are around us because our eyes are set on Christ and because we've come to understand the grace of God. If you're struggling in those ways, just remember God's grace. Isn't that what Paul says? Remind them. Remind them, verse 1 to live this way because of who God is and what he has made them in Christ.